Our scripture lesson today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 32. This is the tail end of one of Jesus' best-known parables, sometimes called the parable of the prodigal son, about a wealthy landowner who has two sons, uh, the younger of which demands his inheritance early, the equivalent of telling his father to drop dead, and most surprisingly, his father gives it to him. He goes off to a faraway land and squanders it in dissolute living, the scriptures tell us, and then eventually um, decides that he has no other path except to return home to his father and live as one of his father's servants. Instead, his father welcomes him home with open arms and throws him a lavish party, which is where we pick up the story um, from the perspective of the elder son. As we prepare to hear God's word read and proclaimed, let us pray. Holy and gracious God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Now, the elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked what was going on. He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. At 10 years old, Arthur Brooks had a modest goal to become the world's best French horn player. He practiced constantly. He was so focused on his music that he let other things slide. He didn't care about academics, and although he went to college, he dropped out, or was it kicked out, after just one year. That's when he hit the road with his French horn and his ambition. For a decade or so, Brooks lived his best life. He struggled to pay the rent most months, but he was having a great time. Eventually, he followed the woman he loved to Barcelona and landed a job playing for the Barcelona Symphony. But in his mid-twenties, something about his playing began to change. Instead of getting better, like you might expect a young professional musician to do, he got worse. Looking back now, he suspects he had torn a muscle, but at the time, it was a mystery. He changed teachers, he practiced harder, 
but the decline in his playing was undeniable. He simply couldn't hit the notes anymore. At barely 30 years old, Brooks had no idea where to go or what to do next. The life he had prepared for was unavailable to him. He was hopelessly lost. Songwriter Nick Cave claims that loss is the primary experience that binds all humans together. He writes, these losses are many-faceted and chronic, both monstrous and trivial. They are losses of dignity, losses of agency, losses of trust, losses of spirit, losses of direction or faith, and of course, losses of the ones we love. Loss is a universal human experience. Luke chapter 15 is full of loss. In this one chapter, Jesus tells three parables of loss about a lost coin, a lost sheep, and a lost son. In these stories, loss does not discriminate. It impacts a shepherd, a woman, and a wealthy landowner. What we all have in common is loss. This chapter begins when a group of tax collectors and sinners, people considered irredeemably lost, keep coming to Jesus. The religious leaders, the ones who worked hard to do all the right things all the time, find it very off-putting when these lost souls seek Jesus out, and even more when Jesus receives them with open arms. And so, they exchange knowing glances. They grumble to each other under their breath. It is in response to this grumbling that Jesus tells these parables, which are both about the pain of loss, but also about the deep and abiding joy that comes when something or someone lost gets found. The shepherd, the woman, the wealthy father, each of them rejoices when what they lost is found, and each of them invites the whole community to join in the celebration. But there is one character in the final parable, this parable of the lost son, who doesn't fit the mold. One character who isn't rejoicing at the end of the story the character of the older son. You know, the son who didn't squander away his father's fortune on illicit adventures in a faraway land. The son who does all the right things, who works hard, keeps his head down, never asks for anything. And yet, by the end of this parable, it is clear. The son who is lost is not the younger son, who ran away. It's the older son who never left home. At age 30, Arthur Brooks had to reinvent himself. After two decades of striving to be the best French horn player in the world, he could no longer play professionally. So he started over. He went to college and then graduate school, eventually getting his PhD. 
he now makes a living studying what makes people happy. What he's learned is that after about age 65, half of the population gets happier and the other half gets unhappier. When Brooks first discovered this, he assumed that the people whose happiness declined as they aged were the ones who hadn't achieved very much, the ones who realized that their time was running short and they hadn't done all the things they'd hoped to do. But that's not what the data showed. It turns out the people who get less happy as they age are more likely to be what Brooks calls strivers, people who spend their early decades fixated on individual success, whether that looks like climbing a corporate ladder or making a lot of money or raising high-achieving children. This propensity toward unhappiness in the second half of life is what Brooks calls the striver's curse. His research shows that people who are fixated on striving, on attaining success, tend to do so at the expense of their relationships. So when they reach the second half of life, they discover they just don't have the kind of interpersonal connections that are a critical component of human happiness. At the end of the parable, the older son says to his father, all these years I've been working like a slave for you, and when this son of yours comes back, you kill the fatted calf for him. Did you hear what he did there? His relationship with his brother is so broken, he can't even refer to him as my brother, calling him instead this son of yours. The father longs to restore the brokenness between his beloved sons, and so he gently reframes their relationship in his response. Son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours, but this brother of yours was lost and now has been found. Will the older son accept his father's invitation to join the party? even if it means seeing his brother with whom he is so angry? Or will he get back to work trying to earn his happiness by doing the right thing? Well, we don't know, because that's where the parable ends. Jesus leaves us to write the conclusion. In a recent article, Father Richard Rohr reflects that God has always had a very hard time giving away God. No one seems to want this gift. We'd rather have religion and laws and commandments and obligations and duties. I'm sure many of us attend church out of duty, he continues, but gathering with the body of Christ is supposed to be a wedding feast, Do you know how many times in the Gospels eternal life is described as a banquet, a feast, a party, a wedding, the marriage feast of the Lamb? There are 15 different direct allusions to eternal life being a great big party and one to it being a time of judgment. He continues, Jesus goes out of his way to mention who will be at the party, the good and the bad alike. We don't like that either. 
We only want the good people there at the banquet, assuming, of course, that we are the good people. Did you ever see the irony of that? He asks. Don't you realize that every religion thinks they are the ones that God likes? We end up gathering at that party with smug certitude. But when we do, it resembles something that isn't much like a party. For many of us, the body of Christ is not a party. One Sunday, a pastor preached a sermon on Psalm 23, focusing on the line, You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. He interpreted this to mean that heaven would be a celebration where we would feast at God's table with our friends and enemies alike. After church, a woman approached the pastor with a look of anger on her face. Pastor, she said, you know I respect you, but I cannot accept the message of your sermon. There's no way I'll be eating with my enemies in God's kingdom. That is not heaven to me. No, the pastor responded. That would be hell for you, wouldn't it? Today is World Communion Sunday, when Christians all over the world are celebrating the Lord's Supper, this great big party to which God has invited all of us. Communion will be celebrated in every language, with all manner of bread and cup, and with all kinds of people, children and the elderly, people with varying physical and intellectual abilities, people who've sown some wild oats, and those who've always done the right thing. Communion is being celebrated today with equal passion by people in Russia and in Ukraine, by Democrats and Republicans, by denominations that ordain women and queer people, and by those who believe that to do so would send them straight to hell, by people who've gone to church their whole lives and by those who wandered in off the street this morning for reasons they can't really explain. They are all invited to God's party. We are all invited to God's party. But like the older brother in this parable, we have to decide. Will we show up? Even if the sibling we cannot stand is guaranteed to be there as the guest of honor? Jonathan and Melissa Nightingale recall the night years ago when they left their apartment in Toronto after a long day of work, hungry and way too tired to make any decisions about dinner. It was, they said, the kind of hungry plus tired combination where even the question, what are you in the mood to eat, feels like a confrontation. In my house, we call that being hangry. It was in this state that they passed a chalkboard sign in front of a restaurant they'd never visited. In large letters, it simply said, let us feed you. Now, they knew that chalkboard signs outside of restaurants shouldn't make you want to cry, but this one did. So deep was their relief of someone else taking on what felt like a Herculean task. So they went inside and sat down. A server came over and asked them three questions. How hungry are you? Do you have any food allergies? Is there anything you don't like or just don't feel like eating tonight? 
And then, like magic, dish after delicious dish made its way to their table without them placing an order or ever seeing a menu. They came in, answered a few easy questions, and enjoyed a feast. They were lost, and they got found and fed. We have all been lost. Maybe we're feeling lost right now, whether to greed or grief or addiction or striving or certainty that our way is the only way. We've all been lost. But what also unites us is that we have all been claimed by God in the waters of baptism, just like busy. Each one of us has a seat at God's table and a place card with our name on it and the words, let me feed you. Because we may get lost to ourselves and to each other, but none of us has ever been lost to God. We don't know what the older brother decides to do here, whether he accepts the invitation to join the celebration, knowing his brother will, will be there too. We don't know if he is reconciled to his family. What we do know, no matter who we are, no matter where we've been or what mistakes we've made or how hard we've tried to do the right thing, we know that God invites us to the party. All we have to do is take our place with the rest of God's family and enjoy this feast. Amen.